Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at uh, one verse this morning because the whole rest of the book of Ephesians is unpacking verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 4. If you think about the book of Ephesians, you can think of it in two sections. The first section is Paul reminding Christians what God has done for the believer. Those, that's the first three chapters. The second three chapters is uh, live then this way in light of what God has done. So here's the transitional verse. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to walk. You see, it's a command. It's not what God has done. Now it's because God has done all this, because God has worked this incredible salvation for you, because the fullness of God abides in you in the Spirit of God, and His power is at work inside of you to do beyond what you can ask or imagine. Therefore, walk. Before we just jump wholesale in, I want to uh, define for you three words that you might know uh, quite well. Others might not so much, uh, but it's in regards to our salvation. What is salvation? One way to think of it is in these three terms. It's our justification, it's our sanctification, and it's our glorification. So, the reason why it's helpful to get these terms in our minds is because there's a transition now to talk about our sanctification. So let's, let's define the terms. Justification is our declared righteousness before God. You can hear in the word justification, you can, you can hear the word justice, you can think of a judge, and in our justification, God the judge declares the believer not guilty. It's a legal declaration that the moment the believer trusts Christ, their standing before God the judge is not guilty. And not only is his judgment not guilty, but it's righteous before me. So the moment I trusted Christ, in the law books of heaven, there's a legal declaration that Sam Ellison is 
counted as righteous and therefore not guilty. That doesn't mean that I am righteous. It means I'm counted righteous. That happens for the believer the moment they believe. Justification is as good as done for the believer. You know, when we... uh, well, I'll give you Romans 4, 4 and 5. Here, here's how Paul says it. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Right? You would be offended if you went to work and you earned wages and your boss came and says, I have a gift for you. And it was just your wage. It would be offensive because you worked for it and you earned it. Right? So to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's counted as righteousness because this person believes in a God who justifies the ungodly, finds the ungodly not guilty. For the person who believes that that is true in, the, in Christ, God counts them righteous. So when we talk about salvation, almost always this is what people are talking about. They're talking about justification. You know, we need to get the lost people saved. Not guilty before God in heaven. And, and, and we use the word salvation as merely justification. But Jesus didn't merely die to wipe your sins away so that you'd be found found not guilty before the throne of heaven. But he also died so that you would be conformed into the image of Christ. He died for you so that you would no longer live for yourself, but for God. And so when we think about the holistic understanding of salvation biblically, when we talk about salvation, it's more than just justification, but it's also sanctification. You know, if someone asked me, are you saved? And I said, well, I'm being saved. You might be, what? You know, you might think maybe Sam has accepted Roman Catholic theology which teaches that justification happens by Christ's work in your work together working righteousness for yourself so that justification is not by grace alone, but it's also by our works. Is that what I would be saying if I was saying, 
I'm being saved. No, justification is God's work of grace for the ungodly. Those, the verses we read in Romans 4 did not say that the ones who work with the God of grace are counted righteous. It says those who believe in, in a God that justifies the ungodly. But it would not be a false statement for me to say that I am being saved. In this sense, let me give you some verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. So sanctification, let me give you the definition first. Sanctification is our gradual growing righteousness. Our gradual growing righteousness. So I'm saved by a foreign righteousness. I'm justified by a foreign righteousness. I'll stand before God perfectly righteous because Christ gifted me his perfect life. All right? But that's not the only righteousness that salvation brings. It also brings about a gradual growing righteousness where we actually begin to change, to be conformed in the image of Christ. And so sometimes Paul talks about being saved as a process in the sense of sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To us that are being saved. Because when Paul talks about salvation, he's talking about justification, sanctification, glorification, the whole package. So your justification is secure now. Your sanctification is gradually growing. And when Christ returns and, and you become, get a body like his, when all sin is actually wiped away in your life, you'll be glorified. And that day will be the end of our salvation because it will have all come to completion. Or he says it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there, he's talking to brothers who are being saved as they hold fast to the word of Christ and fight the fight of faith. Or 2 Corinthians 2 14 through 16. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads a fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 
To the one, a fragrance from death to death. To other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for all these things, he says. And so the believer is being led and putting by Christ and putting off this aroma to those who are perishing. It's a terrible stench. But to those who are being saved, it's a sweet aroma. One more. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What do you mean a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? Well, there he talked, he got into glorification, didn't he? He got into the inheritance that will be the believers. That's when it'll be fully revealed as it's actualized in our lives in fullness. So glorification is the future final work of God upon Christians where he transforms our mortal physical bodies to eternal physical bodies in which we will dwell forever. So we're waiting for that day. But right now, the process that we are in is sanctification. Right now, I stand justified before God in heaven. Done deal. But I am being saved and that I'm being conformed into the image of Christ. By God's grace, I'm dying more and more to myself and becoming more and more like Christ. And if you've ever seen a chart, like in, in our biblical counseling training, they do a chart of what biblical sanctification looks like. It's not like this. Just everything's up. Everything's better than yesterday. The chart is like this. There's ups and downs, but as you look over time, the progression is going up. You know, if you've thought yourself to be a believer, but the progression of your life is it is not in a manner that is on its way up, one of the questions you ought to rightly ask yourself is, well, if Christ died for my sins, has he failed for me to conform me into his image? Because that's why he gave you the spirit. And that's why he gave you the church. And that's why he gave you his word. And he's actually promised to be doing this work in the believer's life. So that one of the signs of a believer is not a person that's, that's good. It's a person that's in a battle against sin, fighting the fight of faith, repenting of their sin, and trusting in Christ, and, and waking up every day in that battle.
So all that to point out the rest of Ephesians is going to be calling us to live in a certain way. But here's what you need to know. God's commands to the believer are always rooted first in what God has done for you in Christ. The first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are what they are for a reason. So what God has done on behalf of the believer, those are called the those can be called the indicatives. The, uh, in a sense, God did this work. The imperatives are the commands. Now think if those were flipped around. Think if those were flipped around to say, live in this way, and if you do it good enough, then these truths will be true in your life. Well, then that would be terrible news, wouldn't it? especially if perfect righteousness is the standard for uh, being saved and, and entering heaven. So Paul always toiled for the sanctification of believers. Now, we live in a culture that just wants to get people saved. But if you ask Paul, what are you doing? He, he would say, I, I'm striving to bring the church to maturity. To, they're, they're a new people. It's a new man. It's a new woman. I'm striving to get them to live out of their new life, to put off the old self and put on the new self. And we're going to see that in this text. We're going to see his uh, striving. I mean, he, Colossians 1.28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. I'm striving. It's not my power. It's his power, but it's for the maturity, the maturing of believers, which is going to show itself mainly in love for one another. It's going to show itself in all sorts of ways, but love is what encapsulates all that Christ calls us to. So let's look at our text. The charge of this sermon is to live lives that match your knowledge of the love of Christ. So he just prayed, this is what we looked at last week, that we comprehend the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. And now in light of that, we live lives that match what we were, he's praying we could comprehend. And so point one in your notes is this. Interpret your life through the lens of Christ's loving call. All right. Why is that point one? Look at, look at what he says. He says, I therefore, we'll talk about the therefore in a minute. I therefore, a prisoner 
for the Lord urge you to walk. So why does he say that? This is the second time. He does this in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Why does he keep bringing up the fact that he's in prison in Rome? But he doesn't say he's a prisoner of Rome. He says he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He says he's a prisoner of the Lord in our text. Because this is what has happened to the Apostle Paul. Paul knows that every single circumstance of his, his life, he's not a victim of this world. He knows that every suffering he goes through, whether good or bad, is according to God's plan for his life. He's able to be thankful for even his suffering because the way he views his entire life, everything is through the lens of Christ. Everything is through the lens of the Lord. So if he's a prisoner, whether it's in Aberdeen or in Rome, he's a prisoner of Christ. You see that? You see how easy it's to live not like that? We kind of have, you know, we live, usually this one we say, let's get real. Yeah, yeah, I know the Bible says rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice, but let's get real. Life's hard. Life's difficult. Let me complain. Let me throw my pity party. Let me, yes, I know these verses are true and I got to deal with them and I'm going to try to deal with them. But what Paul is doing is he's viewing his present circumstances through the lens of God's plan for his life. And he's about to say, walk in this way. But he wants them to know that this isn't Paul living on easy street asking you to walk with Christ. This is Paul, the prisoner for the Lord. The prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. You remember, you remember Paul's call to ministry? What God told Ananias about Paul when he's supposed to go uh, uh, bring him from his blindness and tell him uh, what his mission is. Here, here's what God says to Ananias. He says, the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That sounds like a pretty high call there. That sounds pretty prestigious. But he doesn't end there. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. You see, his very call to ministry was a call to suffer. In Philippians, Paul says that, that, that if he could just suffer in the same way of Christ that he may also experience the resurrection of Christ. Paul's goal in life was not to avoid suffering. 
It was to fulfill what God has called him to in his life. So interpret your life through the lens of Christ's loving call. Now let's look at the therefore in verse 1. He, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. Now the therefore encompasses the first three chapters. The first three chapters were laid out, and in light of those chapters, live this way. And I know we've been through this a lot, but real quickly, I just want to remind us. He, he begins the letter, he calls them saints. Well, you didn't start as a saint, but the letter is written to saints. And then in verse 4, chapter 1, it says, he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before us. So you have a title, saints, holy ones. And then he chose you to be holy and blameless. If you're sitting here saying, what's God's purpose for my life? He chose you to be holy and blameless. He adopted you as sons. Sons look like their fathers. And sons also inherit what the father has. The, the eldest son gets the greatest inheritance. And we weren't just adopted as children. It says we were adopted as sons. So if we were going to say, I wonder what I'm supposed to do with my life. I wonder what he wants with my day. I wonder how I'm supposed to live. You already could figure it out, couldn't you? But, I mean, we've barely started and we can see where it's going. Then in Ephesians 9, this was according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. So your life has a purpose, and it, God has a plan for it. So we ought to be asking, what is it? We can already answer so much. We're sons. We're to be holy and blameless. We're called saints. And then he reminds us of the hope that we have in Ephesians 1.18. He wants our eyes of our heart and light lightened that we would know what is the hope to which he has called you. So you've been called. We're going to talk about that word in a minute. We've been called to a hope which is attached to a purpose and a plan which is going to come about. He wants us to know the hope to which we are called, the riches of the inheritance, glorious inheritance in the saints. That's speaking about future inheritance. And then what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. So, so God saved me, called me a saint. He determined that I'd be holy and blameless before his presence. He adopted me as his child. He has a plan and purpose for my life. And he's showed us how it's going to end. And he gave us his power. And he gave us power according to his might. And what we ought to say is, what's the power for? What's the power for? What's the purpose of my life? And then Chapter 2 begins, and he reminds us who we were. 
We were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world. We're by, by nature children of wrath, but then verse 5 says, when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So you were dead. This person didn't exist, but now spiritual life has come to this person. A new man has been birthed. What for? What for? Well, he tells us, Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. So God's doing something. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. What? I am. A, one thing you could say is a, a trophy of God's grace. He's building something. He, he's made a new man. He's brought one who was dead. Paul, uh, another way Paul says it, that which did not exist, he brought into existence. We are his workmanship. What for? Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's that word which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. He's, he didn't save us and then say, oh, they're a new person now. What should I have them do? Well, I'm gonna ha I want them to walk in what I said. No, he prepared ahead of time the good works that he wants us to walk in. You see? And then he, he goes on to tell us, that he makes one new man out of the place of the two, Jew and Gentile, a new humanity. He unites them together with God and each other. Sin has separated both Adam and Eve from each other and them from God. But in Christ, a new man comes where unity can be between the greatest enemies, Jew and Gentile. They can be reconciled and even better than that, we can be reconciled to God. So that's, that, that's what he's been telling us. And then the end of chapter 3, you know, he prays that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you'd be filled with the fullness of God. What for? That we'd be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do, you see, you're saved not merely just to be here until you go to heaven. I feel like that's how so many Christians were, were taught. Like, it's like once you're saved, now get on with your life. You, I mean, you don't want to live a very bad life, but get on with your life and just wait until you get there. But you weren't given the fullness of God, the, the Holy Spirit, to just wait to just add Jesus as like a cherry on top of your ice cream. That's good. Now I know I'm justified. Now I'm just going to get on with my life. I'm going to quit worrying about death because I know that's taken care of. I'm going to heaven. No. You were given the fullness of God so that now he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. 
according to the power at work within us. That's the, that's the crazy thing, isn't it? He could just do it. You know, one pastor gave the illustration of like a father and an eight-year-old going to build a shed. The father can build the shed really fast, but what if that father let the eight-year-old drive every nail in that shed? Well, it's going to take a long time. It's going to take a lot of patience. When God decided to save us, he could have instantly, like that, brought about our glorification. But in his infinite wisdom, he has given you his Holy Spirit so that through the power of his Spirit, your hand grabs the hammer and starts pounding the nails. Who gives credit? Well, you weren't even alive apart from grace, right? He gets, he gets all the glory. He gets all the credit. But God is going to do his work in you. So when he says, therefore, in our text, that's, that's what he's already said in obviously much richer detail than what we just reviewed. So now, if we're not only to interpret our life through the lens of Christ, we're also to live your life through the lens of Christ's loving call. Look at what he says. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So his urging is could also be interpreted as begging so so paul could be described as one who begs believers to live out of their new life they've been given to work out of the new lives they've been given you know think about how the law was given on sinai Smoke and fire on a mountain. The people are terrified. Tell God not to talk to us out of his voice anymore. We want to hear it out of your voice, Moses. Don't, don't let him talk to us this way. And, and what was the covenant in Sinai? Here's how, here's how Moses reiterates it to them in Deuteronomy 30, verse 16. He says, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God and by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Now, I know that doesn't sound that comforting to you because there is an if at the start of that. And then he says, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and to serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. So Sinai covenant was, you obey me and I'll bless you. You disobey me and I'll curse you. You'll be judged. So 
Christ comes along, what we've just read in Ephesians is we've just been told, Christian, before you ever did anything good or bad, before the foundation of the world, you were predestined. You were redeemed by the blood of Christ. You were adopted into his family. You were given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Therefore, walk. See the difference? See the difference there? The other one is walk this way so that you may be blessed. But the law of grace is what? What, what is Paul asking for? He's saying, look it, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Therefore, walk. You see? If you strive in your sanctification because you think you got to earn your salvation. You better do it perfect because if you want to get there by keeping the law, you got to keep all of it. So as we talk about living the way Paul's calling us to do, don't do it according to the law. Do it according to the book of Ephesians because every spiritual blessing has been given to you. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy, all right? That's critically important. That's the difference between true Christianity and works salvation. And, this, and so then he says, to walk in a manner worthy. That word worthy is an interesting Word. Well, actually, I want to talk about the word walk first. To walk, peripateo, means uh, to live or behave in a customary manner. To live, to behave, to go about doing. This is like your life. So, so to live in a certain way is to walk in a certain way. It's a manner of living. You understand that, right? If we're to walk in a manner, it means like, the normal part of your life is to be lived in this manner. So he says, walk in a manner worthy. The word worthy is really interesting. It's axios, where you get the word axis. If you think of a balance and, and you want to have something balanced on an axis, uh, you, you have to have the same amount of weight on one side as you have on the other. And that's what he said. He's, so he said, I just told you all these incredible uh, truths of the grace and love of Christ in your life. Every spiritual blessing is on one side of the teeter-totter. And he says, therefore, since that was all done by grace... What should you put on this side? Something that makes sense of it. Something that balances it out. That's why what we're going to look at next week, as he fleshes out how we're supposed to live, the first thing he calls us to is to humility. Because that's the only thing that makes sense in light of the first three chapters. Right? So to work, we're to live in a way that makes sense of the realities of what Christ has done for us, not to earn our salvation, 
but because he's worthy of it. You know, this is the parable, you know, the guy that owes an incredible debt to a master, and that master forgives an incredible debt. And, th and then that man has a man that owes him just a little tiny debt, and he doesn't pay it. And what does he do? He, he chokes him, takes him to prison. And then Jesus says, what's going to happen when his master finds out that he showed him incredible mercy, and now he's going to go do this? See, the idea there is on that teeter-totter, that guy didn't live in a way that was worthy of the grace that was given him. So that's the picture here. Even in our Reformed, Calvinistic, biblical culture of today, I heard this really emphasized by John MacArthur. He actually preached on this text six months ago. And what he said is, he says, it's amazing. We live in a culture that loves the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, but seems to have forgotten that rather than just put all this knowledge in our heads, that Paul wants us to put all that knowledge in our head so that we would walk in a way that was worthy of Christ. In the example he gave, half of his sermon was reading Wil Wilbur Wilberforce's diary, how at the end of every day, he tried to calculate how he did living his life in a worthy manner before the Lord. This is what we're called to. From the very beginning of Ephesians 1, all the way through Ephesians 3, this is, you can see it heading here. This is what God is calling us to. You see, Christ didn't just come to merely take away our sins and secure us an inheritance, but he came so that we would live differently in the here and now. And the only way we'll do that is if we Put on, if we're living life through the right glasses, and you're only going to be looking through the right glasses if you're reading the gospel, if you're meditating on these truths that Paul has given us. Because the fuel for you to walk in a manner worthy is comprehending the love of Christ. See, that's the motivation. You can't do it in your own strength. The motivation comes from the Holy Spirit opening your eyes to comprehend things that are incomprehensible, namely the love of Christ. So to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. You know, this is, we talked about this, right? This is the effectual call. There's a general call that we're to preach to the ends of the earth Christ. But when the effectual call comes down on a person, a person believes. Right? So, the calling he is talking about is the calling we already 
looked at, um, let's see, where was it? Ephesians 1.18, the hope to which he has called you. He, ha- he is the one that regenerates us, that gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. So we're to live in a manner worthy of the calling. I sat there and I thought long and hard how to illustrate this. I don't know if I really came up with a gray one, but here's my best attempt, all right? Imagine an evil man that kidnaps a person, a family member, let's say. He kidnaps a family member and for years holds that person imprisoned in his basement, abusing and torturing that family member. And another family member comes along, figures out where he lives, risks his life to save that person that is caught and captive. And in the process of redeeming that family member to to saving them, he ends up dying in the battle with that evil man. Now imagine you're the victim that's been abused and beaten and a family member just gave their life to free you. And then you decide, I'm going back. I want to live there 10 more years. I want to live there 20 more years. See, we would all say, what a, what a terrible, what a terrible thought. What a wrong that has been done. And yet the Bible describes sin as like an evil master. Sin is like an evil master. It demands our obedience. It wants to have us fully. It lies to us, promising life, but brings forth physical and eternal death. In fact, everything that is sad in this world, everything that is broken in this world and fallen in this world ultimately traces back to the sin in the Garden of Eden. Where sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve as they disbelieved God's word and chose rather to believe the words of the serpent. Many today are angry at God about the present state of the world. Yet the Bible teaches that God created it good. And sin and rebellion is how we make sense of what we see. Sin has never done you good. It has only lied to you. It has only deceived you. It has only brought about corruption in your life. And Christ has died for you to free you from that evil master. And now Paul is begging Christians, live, live in a way worthy of your Savior who gave his life to free you from this master. And then he's going to flesh that out. 